Well, good morning again. As always, it is a joy and privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you this morning. I'm glad to be back in the pulpit after a few weeks out. Uh, I'm grateful to Peter and to Plune for preaching to you all uh, while I was gone. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, would you turn to Psalm 31? Psalm 31. We've been in the Psalms for a month now, and as we've been trying to remember as we read the Psalms, it's that they are a bit different than the rest of Scripture. All of Scripture is God's Word. It is breathed out by God, and so it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. But the Psalms, as we've said, are not just God's Word to us. They are also God's words for us. They are God-given responses for His people. They're songs and prayers for us to sing and pray back to Him. And so we are to learn from the Psalms, not just by their content, but by using them, by praying them and singing them to God. And one legitimate question might be, when? When am I supposed to sing and pray the Psalms. Well, you, you could do any number of things. You could pray through the Psalms one a day, starting at one and going through Psalm 150. You could memorize several of them and use them as model prayers to help you pray regularly. We sing the Psalms frequently in worship. But one thing that might help us sing and pray the Psalms more is to understand their circumstances. Different psalms are said to God in the midst of different circumstances. We can even see this in the ones that we've already looked at this summer. Psalm 63 is said to God when David is in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 23 has a few different circumstances, but the most memorable is being in the valley of the shadow of death. Peter preached Psalm 137 of two weeks ago, which cries out to God when Israel is being taken into exile and being mocked by their captors. And then last week, Plune preached Psalm 8, which begins with awe and wonder as the singer looks up at the starry night sky and then begins thinking about how small and insignificant humanity is. These psalms have different circumstances, and so they have different uses different times when they would come to mind to pray or sing. And there are all kinds of circumstances or categories of psalms. Psalms for when you have just sinned and come to God in confession. Psalms for times of joy. Times when you are thankful for what God has done. But do you know what category, what circumstance shows up the most frequently in all the psalms? Psalms of lament. A lament is an expression of grief or sorrow. Of the 150 psalms, about 67 of them are laments. That means that almost half of the songs God has given us to sing to Him, almost half of the prayers He has given to teach us how to come to Him, are ready-made For when you are grieving, when you are in distress, when you are in anguish. Think about that for a second. What does that say about the normal Christian life? 
That doesn't mean we have no hope. It doesn't mean that we don't have joy and confidence. There's plenty of that in the Psalms and throughout the Bible. But it does mean, as Jesus says to his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation or trouble. Peter told us in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Sorrow, grief, despair, these things are normal in the Christian life. And they are normal because trouble and tribulation are normal. We get sick. People who are close to us die. We have strained relationships that used to be so sweet. Our work is hard and discouraging. Our families don't look the way we want them to look. We sin. We fail. We can often feel like David in verses 9 and 10 of our psalm today. He says, I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. My soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails me because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. So the question is not, will you have anguish and grief and despair as a Christian? That is a given. That is just a part, that is just as much a part of the Christian life as it is a part of the human condition. But instead, the question that we have to wrestle with is, what will you do with your anguish and your grief? When trouble comes, when difficulty arises, when pain and sorrow come into your life, what will you do? The psalm today doesn't just teach us what we should do, but in many respects, it is one of the answers to what we should do. You should pray this psalm. You should sing Psalm 31 in your distress. But so that we can sing and pray it from the heart and with understanding, we're going to spend some time looking at this psalm today and seeing the glory of God in it. So before we go to this psalm, would you pray with me and ask for God's help? Heavenly Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this heavenly food that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, we pray. Amen. This is Psalm 31, to the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction and you have known the distress of my soul. And you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. 
Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has, done, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to see four things as we look more closely at this psalm today. We're going to see the circumstances of this psalm. We've already said that this is a psalm of lament, but we're going to see the specific kinds of distress and affliction this psalm addresses. Second, we're going to see the temptation that these circumstances bring. Thirdly, we'll see the response that God calls us to. And then finally, we'll see the reasons that we can have that response. So, circumstances, temptation, response, and reasons. First, let's look at the circumstances of this psalm. And the first thing to say is that we don't know much about the original circumstances that caused David to write this psalm. It has a title to the choir master, a psalm of David, but it doesn't say something like the title of Psalm 3, which says, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Or Psalm 34, which says, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech. Like most of the psalms, all we have is what he wrote. The text does give us some hints about what these circumstances might have been. In verse 4, David says that God takes him out of the net they have hidden for him. Verse 15 talks about his enemies and persecutors. And in verse 20, he speaks of the plots of men and the strife of tongues. But the clearest picture we get of his circumstances is in verses 11 through 13. Look at those verses with me again. He says, Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, 
and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. This is a time where people were plotting against David to take his life, to try and kill him. His enemies were scheming against him, and it seems like this is causing other people around him to look on him with scorn and dread. He says that even his neighbors and acquaintances flee from him. It's likely that this was one of those two times in David's life when he was on the run for his life. Either in 1 Samuel 15 or 21 through 31 when Saul was seeking to kill him, or in 2 Samuel 15 through 18 when his son Absalom is seeking to kill him. These are the times where David's world is falling around him. His kingship in Israel has been taken away. In both instances, this involved close family members and friends turning on David. And his life is now lived in fear, not knowing which day might be his last. But this isn't just a record of David's prayer. It was written down and put in the Bible for Israel to sing and pray together. One of the reasons why more specifics of David's situation might not be included is because this was meant for each member of God's people to sing in their own grief. And so we see things that are typical for all of us in our times of grief. The fear of being put to shame runs through the psalm. Verse 7 speaks generally of my affliction and the distress of my soul. Verses 9 through 10 are the most intense and also can be said by almost any of us during our times of distress. Look at them with me. Verse 9 says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. In biblical poetry, the eye often has to do with energy, with drive, with desire. So in Psalm 13 and 19, the psalmist's eyes are lit up with joy. But in Psalm 69, his eyes grow dim from waiting for God. Here, his eye, his energy, is wasted from his grief. His years are spent in sighing and sorrow. Do you get the sense of his groaning, of despair? We see that this is not just an emotional despair. It's not just his emotions that are affected by his grief. He says his body is also. This is one of the important truths that Scripture gives us about how God created us as humans, that we are both a body and a soul united to one another. And so one always affects the other. David's emotional grief has zapped his physical energy. The picture seems to be that he doesn't even want to get out of bed in the morning. This may not be where you are every morning, but it either has been where you are or it will be where you are on one morning. David's grief is caused by those who are trying to oust him from the throne and kill him 
But the people of God experience all kinds of various trials, as Peter and James both tell us. Paul describes the Christian life with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. This is everything from a difficult marriage relationship to a terminal diagnosis. This is everything from a job that you dread every day to people at work or school whispering about you because of what you believe. This is your adult child who has walked away from the faith. Your desire to be married that has gone unmet. Your disease that you are reminded of on a daily or an hourly basis. And that's not even to mention the griefs that are brought about by our own sin. Notice that David says in verse 10, My strength fails me because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. This sounds very much like the next psalm over, Psalm 32, where David, talking about his sin, says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. So maybe your body feels like it's wasting away because you are living in the darkness, living in sin and not walking in the light and confession. But he also may recognize that some of his plight is a result of his own sin. Maybe you have strained relationships that you know you have played a part in, or you're swimming in debt because of your own overspending. Both of these are in view in this psalm. Sorrow for sin and the general calamities of life. This is the circumstance of this psalm. Distress, anguish, sorrow. My eye is wasted from grief. My soul and my body also. So what is the answer when we find ourselves in a situation like that? What can we do to get out of our despair? David actually begins by pointing here to at least one temptation we have in that moment. Look at verse 6 with me. He says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. We're going to look at the second half of that verse in a minute, the trust in the Lord part, but notice that David contrasts it with something. He contrasts it with paying regard to worthless idols. Why does he mention this? Is he trying to show God how pious and righteous he is that he doesn't do what those other people do? I don't think so. I think David is contrasting the way that others run when calamities come their way to the way that he has determined to run. Others run after worthless idols when they are in sorrow. Why would someone run after, why would someone pay regard to an idol when they were in sorrow or trouble? We've got to know a little bit about how idols and other gods in the ancient world worked to understand this. The gods of the nations around Israel were almost always regional, or we could say topical, gods. What I mean is they had a certain area of jurisdiction. There was a God who controlled the weather and the crops. A God who was in control of fertility. A God who was in control of wars and battles. A God of healing. And the list goes on. 
and you made sacrifices and paid tribute to these gods to gain their favor in those areas. So what is the temptation for an Israelite when they have been trying to have kids and are in despair because it's not working? Maybe you make a sacrifice to the fertility god of the nation next to you and see if it works. If your crops aren't growing, maybe you take a chance and see if you can gain the favor of the god of the weather. And you may hear that and think, what a superstitious and irrational thing to do. Good thing we don't do that. We don't have enough time to really develop an understanding of modern-day idolatry, but I want you to listen to what Martin Luther, the 16th-century German reformer, said about this. He said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Let me say that again. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. So think about what you do when your life goes sideways, when you're in despair. Where do you run? What, you, what do you do to either fix the problem or just make yourself feel better? What do you cling to and confide in? Where do you find refuge? That is your idol. John Calvin the other reformer in the 16th century, a French reformer, said that the human mind is a perpetual forge of idols or an idol factory. What he means is that we are really good at coming up with things other than the one true God to cling to and confide in. We'll turn to our spouse, our bank account, our followers on social media, our success in our job, self-help books, food, pleasure, and so many other things. We are a factory that can turn anything, even a good thing, into an idol. When we are in the midst of despair, our temptation is to run anywhere but to God. But David says in this psalm, he's not going to do that. He won't pay regard to worthless idols Instead, he says in the second half of verse 6, I trust in the Lord. This is the response of this psalm time and time again. David goes back and forth between declaring that he trusts in God, declaring that God is his refuge, and asking God to be his refuge, asking God to save him. Look how he does this in verses 1 and 2. He says, In you, O Lord... Do I take refuge? Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. In verse 5, he gives this wonderful image of entrusting himself to God. He says, into your hand, I commit my spirit. He's saying, I have given my life over to, to you, I am laying myself on you, God. Later in verses 14 and 15, he, de he declares this response again. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. He's saying, you, not the idols of the nations. You are my God. 
I trust in you. That is the response that this psalm gives for us. Not running to find your comfort or answers in the idols of this world, but entrusting yourself to God. Finding your refuge and your shelter in Him. This is what the Lord calls you to do in your grief. The final question we have to ask is why? It is obviously right and good for a Christian to trust in God in the midst of trouble. It is right to find our refuge in God when we are grieving, but we don't trust in a God who simply asks for blind trust. He tells us why He is worthy of our trust. He gives us reasons why it is good to find our refuge in Him. We're going to see three reasons why we can find our refuge in God in times of despair. The first is that God is in control. To use the theological term we often use, He is sovereign. David assumes this throughout the psalm, but we see it especially in his confession in verses 14 and 15 that we just read. He says, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, You are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. My times are in your hand. This word translated times is the word that is often translated seasons. It has the idea of the regular rhythms, the ups and downs of life. And David is acknowledging that those are in God's hands. He has committed and entrusted himself to a God who doesn't just hold the whole world in his hands, but he holds the individual ups and downs of your life in his hands. Every event and every moment of your life is in the control of God. As Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Or Job's final response to God in Job 42, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. But this is not just a big, grand truth about God. It is also a great comfort. Listen to the way the doctrine of God's sovereignty is explained in the Belgic Confession from 1561. They start with a definition of God's sovereignty. They say, We believe that the same good God, after He had created all things, did not forsake them or give them up to fortune or chance, but that He rules and governs them according to His holy will, so that nothing happens in this world without His appointment. Then after a few clarifications, listen to what they say about the comfort that this brings. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father who watches over us with fatherly care, sustaining all creatures under His Lordship so that not one of the hairs of our heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird, can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. Christian, in the midst of grief and despair, you must know that you are not being tossed around by the waves of chance and fate. You are not ultimately subject to market forces or the whims of your boss. 
Your ups and downs, every hour of your day is in the hand of your sovereign and good Heavenly Father. Entrust yourself to Him. The second truth David looks to is that God hears his prayer. It's not just that God is powerful and able to save him, but he is attentive to him. Notice in verse 2, he begs him, incline your ear to me. In verse 17, he reiterates his cry, O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. And then look, God hears his calls. He reflects in verse 22, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Verse 7 rejoices in the same fact. He says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. When you are in the depths of grief, one of the worst feelings that accompanies it is isolation. You feel like you are alone, like no one understands, like no one sees. Brother, sister, the Lord sees. The Lord understands. He sees your affliction and He knows the distress of your soul. He hears your pleas for mercy when you cry to Him, for help. He is not just sovereign. He is also attentive to the ups and downs of your life. He hears your prayers. There's one final reason why you should trust in God in the midst of your despair. I mentioned that isolation is one of the strongest and worst feelings in the midst of grief. You feel like you are alone. That's actually the most poignant moment in this psalm when David says that everyone flees from him in verses 11 through 13. As we've talked about in each of the psalms that we've looked at this summer, we cannot fully understand this psalm until we understand that it is the psalm of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ prayed and sang the psalms, and so he sang and prayed this psalm. And as you read through this psalm and you reflect on Jesus' life, it becomes so obvious that this is his. We don't have time to read back through the whole thing. Jesus actually quotes this psalm from the cross. Verse 5, into your hand I commit my spirit. But we see this especially in verses 11 through 13. Read them again with me. The writer says to God, Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Think of all the moments in the Gospels when you see Jesus' enemies conspiring against him to kill him. Matthew 27, 1, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. John eleven fifty three. 53, So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. 
And these aren't just his enemies who are doing this. It's his friends. Judas, one of his 12 disciples who he spent three years living with and walking with, joins the conspiracy for a promise of money and plots against Jesus. What happens when the plot actually goes down? Jesus' adversaries mock him, and his friends, every last one of his disciples, abandons him. They flee from him. This is Jesus' prayer throughout his life. He knows the pain of grief and abandonment. He knows the weariness of the body. He doesn't just see your affliction. He has experienced affliction. This is the great promise of the book of Hebrews. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Jesus doesn't just know your suffering and your weakness and your pain in the abstract. He has walked in human flesh and lived in human weakness. He was mocked and hurt and misunderstood and fearful in the face of death. He prays this psalm with you. Now, some of you are sharp. You've been with me as we've been talking about Jesus praying the psalms and all of these psalms being the psalms of Jesus that he prays and sings from his heart throughout his life. But you know that some psalms confess our sin. This one does in verse 10. David says, My strength fails because of my iniquity. But Jesus didn't sin. He doesn't join me in my sin. He doesn't know my sin. How can he pray this? It's one of the foundational truths of the Christian faith that Jesus did not sin. He was the perfect sacrifice for sin because he himself was perfectly righteous, a spotless lamb. But it is also a foundational truth of Scripture that Jesus has taken your sin upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is called the doctrine of imputation. Jesus took our sin on himself and gave us his righteousness. Martin Luther calls it the great exchange. He's taken our sin and our guilt and given us his righteous standing. And we're quick to go to the cross. That's where Jesus bore our sin, and that is true. But that is not the only place that Jesus bore our sin. His humiliation, his suffering took place his entire life. He bore the curse of our sin from the moment he was conceived in the womb and throughout his entire life. We have to see the stunning truth of imputation if we are really going to appreciate what Jesus has done for us. And this is the great comfort in our grief and sorrow, especially when we know that it has been caused by our own sin. Not only does God know our grief, but as Isaiah 53 says, he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so because of Jesus, your grief will not last forever. 
Your sorrow has an end date. Because Jesus has taken them upon Himself, He has given you His peace and His joy. And though your sorrows and weaknesses linger in this life, if you are a Christian, there will be a day with no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. And that's why we can end with this final note of verses 23 through 24, even in the midst of our despair. Let's hear them now as we close. Love the Lord, all you His saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Father, we cry out to you in our despair and in our grief. We ask that you would incline your ear to us, that you would hear our prayers. And Lord, just as we did earlier today, we come in confidence, knowing that you hear us because of Jesus, because in your love you sent him to cover over our sin. And so we can have confidence that you are more ready to hear our prayers than we even are to pray them. We pray that you would help us that you would be near to us in our sorrow and grief, and that we would see the light and hope that is only found in Jesus, that we would run to him, that we would cling to him, and that he would be our refuge. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.